Steffen's microphone is now on, and Lauren Latour is not using a microphone today. She is screaming into a gramophone that is hooked up to a tiny little um, plastic amplifier, analog amplifier. I'm like deep throating the gramophone needle. This is the this is the Green Majority, Canada's most elliptical environmental news hour, and uh, we're on CIUT 89.5 FM, of course, Toronto's only independent station on the FM dial. And don't you dare touch that dial, because we are continuing with the Green Majority for another full hour here. You might also be listening to us on your glorious local community radio station or on a podcast app. Stefan and Lauren will be conducting a very prestigious interview with none other than Mr. David Suzuki later in the show. Along with his associates... Mark Starovich and Caitlin Starovich. And they have together with Mr. Suzuki, produced another documentary film. Exactly. What's it called? Apocalypse Plan B. Apocalypse Plan B, and this is about geoengineering. This is if we decide at some point that we have not successfully stemmed the environmental degradation of the globe, we will attempt to inject some sort of technological solution into it. Like what? We talk a a little bit about pumping sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. We talk a little bit about having all of the ships in the world spray water to make more clouds. Uh, We talk a little bit about regenerative farming. Uh, And if folks want to learn more about this, Lauren and I recently went on a podcast called Pullback Podcast, which is part of the Harbinger Network, where we had an hour-long discussion about geoengineering, which we will be airing on this show in a few weeks. And we will be getting to that wonderful exchange between Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour and David uh, Wilfred Arbuckle Suzuki and Mark and Caitlin Starovich in a few minutes. But first, we're going to do some climate news. Let's do it. This will have to be edited out, obviously, but I don't know. Something about Apocalypse Plan B being the title, like there's an abortion joke in there somewhere. (laughs) I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't finessed it, but it exists. Apocalypse Plan B. Abort the apocalypse. Actually, I learned Paris Hilton has 20 frozen male embryos. That that just seems like good sense to me. Like every time (laughs) she meets like a a stand up dude, she's like, yeah, I'll take your I'll take your sperm. Thank you. Yeah. That's totally something I would do if I was like a billionaire. She can't have that much money, can she? No, I don't think she's a billionaire. She was disinherited. So technically all of her money is hashtag self All right. Climate news. Joe Biden, uh, Stefan's favorite man, Stefan's favorite male wow. on the earth, Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden, has approved a massive ConocoPhillips oil and gas drilling project in Alaska. How do you like that, Stefan? Yeah. The project was originally approved by Trump, but then it was rejected by a judge because of an improper environmental assessment. Now Biden has approved it for three drill sites instead of its original five. The project will create 219 oil and gas wells and will operate for over 30 years. The Guardian reports that it will create the greenhouse gas equivalent of 70 new coal plants over its lifespan. It's expected that a lawsuit will be launched against the project. Now, so just... Just for a second here, when 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 they say that it's the equivalent of seventy new coal plants, mm-hmm. right? Coal plants they burn all of that those emissions at on site, right? Because yeah. they're making electricity from burning coal yeah. right there. Whereas this, they're mining 
the oil and gas, the drilling for the oil and gas, and then they're shipping it elsewhere to be burned. Right. So when the Guardian says it'll create the equivalent of 70 new coal plants, are they talking about all of the emissions associated with it, do you think? Oh, I'd have to assume. Otherwise, it couldn't possibly be that that high a number, you mean. And it's unclear. Like, over its lifespan means they're, what, they're they're pumping 30 years of pumping out? Uh, right. So 70 new coal plants for 30 years is what is what the... Yeah, probably something like that. Is. Yeah, I mean, these are the, this is always the difficulty of quantifying these kinds of things, you know. But, I mean, safe to say, this is awful. And I hope listeners understand Dave's uh, negging me in my brief and occasional stokedness about the few things that Joe Biden has done, uh, rather than the overarching support that is implied. Um, because, like, man... This, I mean, I'd be fascinated to know exactly what the thinking is there on this kind of th- this kind of thing. Like, do they think it's never going to happen, so they're just accepting it? Is there some other argument that's that's being played on the background, or do they just actually just think that, like, often you just get end up getting disappointed because you just learn politicians just actually think like, oh yeah, natural gas is a bridge fuel, and that's why they do something like this, and like that's. Probably like totally a possibility, but I would be interested to know what the backroom conversations are because of how obviously this flies in the face of basically everything else that they're doing. But it does also go to the fact that like the actual real goal of the American, you know, policy in the last twenty years has been much more about energy independence than it has been about taking climate change seriously. You know, like. That's why whenever you see Obama walk out and says something like, you know who caused the shale fracking boom? Me. I did that. And it's like, that's not something you want to be on mic bragging about for much longer when the chickens come home to roost. Yeah. So just to remind listeners that like Biden was elected on a platform of like quoting from a New York Times article here, like, quote unquote, no more drilling on federal lands, period. Um, and then he proceeds to pull a stunt like this. And from what I understand, again, pulling from the same article, Willow, which is this specific mining project or oil and gas drilling project, would be, quote unquote, one of the few oil projects that Mr. Biden has approved freely without a court or congressional mandate. So like seemingly without a ton of external pressure from other lawmakers to make this happen. And my bad faith reading. And again, this is just like my gut instinct. This is completely unfounded, not actually based on anything anybody said that I've read so far. But like, we all remember KXL was huge and had and was like a big battleground fight. The Dakota Access Pipeline was huge. Everybody remembers Standing Rock. Those were projects that were happening on sort of like mainland America, quote unquote, America, like the United States, in places that are accessible for people to reach. This is a drilling project that's taking place in like, backwoods Alaska in the middle of the Arctic, or at least what the majority of Southerners would consider to be the Arctic. It's going to be incredibly difficult for people to get there and stage any sort of battleground pushback against this project, except for the folks who already occupy those lands and those territories. Not saying that those folks don't exist, but you're not going to, we're likely, we're unlikely to see the influx of people from outside of the immediate region, like we did with Dapple, or for instance, like we've seen over the last several months, like like we've seen time and again with Wet'suwet'en or with Berry Creek or whatever, because this is so remote, this is so cold, this is so far north. So it's like, yeah, if you're going to approve a project, there's a chance people might just kind of let fly under the radar over the next couple of years. This is an okay candidate. 
And and one last depressing fact before I move on. One of part of ConocoPhillips's plan here, they are going to refreeze parts of the ground that Refree- might Yeah, they have to refreeze the land to stabilize the drilling platforms. Yeah, because because we're already warming our planet too much, so their plan is to refreeze the permafrost so that they can drill for more <laughs> oil and gas that will only make that problem worse. Like, you'd think that that alone would be, like, bring you pause. Yeah, and then is the idea that for the next 30 years over the operation, uh, over the operating timeline of this of this project, that they'll just continue to refreeze those sections of the drilling pads? Like, I'm sorry, like, it's Mr. Freeze's wife in Batman and Robin from, like, 1994. This is so stupid. Um, next story. Police in Atlanta are continuing their aggression against activists opposed to Cop City. One activist named Tortuguita has already been killed by police. The cops have also been charging activists with terrorism. The police training facility would be built on what is currently a public forest. Uh, So activists have been camping out in the forest to protect it. And now on the 4th of March, there was some vandalism and arson over a mile away from the forest. An hour later, police arrested dozens of people who were in the forest at a music festival. The cops charged 23 of them with domestic terrorism with no direct evidence. Uh, The Intercept reports that a total of 42 Stop Cop City activists now face domestic terrorism charges. If you were following the story early on, um, specifically around uh, the the death of uh, Tortuguita, there was this sort of police-led story that there was like a shootout. And you should know that over time, that belief and argument has really proven to be a lie, I think is about as easily as you could say it. There was first evidence that showed out that cops in the area discussed that they had accidentally shot each other. And so that may have been the cause of the injuries of the cops, not that I noticed the shooting. And then more recently, an independent autopsy basically showed that uh, that Tortuguita was shot with his hands up while kneeling, on, while, while sitting cross-legged on the ground. And so... There is increasing evidence that this was an assassination or or even just a killing that was in no way provoked by by this activist themselves. And so to then use this tactic of it's really an intimidation tactic, basically, straight up of charging um, these activists with terrorism charges because it comes with such longer sentences. You saw the same thing in Dapple. Um, at Standing Rock, where they would charge these these people with terrorism charges or threaten charging with terrorism charges just to get them to plead out for lower charges because they knew that they wouldn't get, you know, uh, tried by a jury of their peers. And so, like, this is the strongest arm tactics that you could imagine at play here. And it has to be pushed up back against because if they if it works here, it will continue to be used. There are many reasons why our movement needs to be more explicitly abolitionist, both in terms of prison abolition, but also police abolition. But Dave, can you just remind listeners of like what Cop City is? It's a police training facility that is uh, proposed for what was supposed to be a public forest just outside of Atlanta. And the people there were told it would remain a forest, but then the elected officials went back and decided, yes, indeed. Uh, we are going to build a, a very large police training facility 
don't know if it was the largest in the country or the world, but it was going to have international draw as well. So it would it would train cops in urban settings uh, from around the world and around the United States. Um, and it's called Cop City because it's built like a city to 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 help cops train for urban warfare policing. So Doug Ford uh, is planning to alter Ontario's mining laws in order to allow permits to be issued even if a company has no plan for closing and cleaning up the mine. The government claims it's necessary to make mining approvals faster in order for Ontario to become a major electric vehicle manufacturing hub, ideally producing 400,000 electric vehicles per year by 2030. The CBC quotes environmental law professor Mark Winfield as saying that he can't imagine the process being any more streamlined than it already is. Meanwhile, the Grassy Narrows, Wapikika, Neskantaga, and Big Trout First Lake Nations have formed an alliance to stop the thousands of mineral claims that have been staked on their lands from being developed. Freegrassy.net reports, quote, Grassy Narrows First Station, located about 100 kilometers northeast of Kenora, Ontario, said that it has seen about 4,000 mining claims uh, on its land since 2018, when the Ontario government allowed any licensed prospector to register a mining claim online for a small fee. The government's online mining system does not tell prospectors before they stake a claim whether the land is part of an indigenous territory. Grassy Narrows is also concerned that cutting down trees will cause more mercury-contaminated gravel to slip into their water sources when it rains. Mercury from a paper mill was dumped on their territory in the 60s. Yeah, and so uh, there's going to be more news about this coming out in the next coming weeks. Uh, the Grassy Narrows First Nation is planning on coming to Toronto uh, for an action uh, in at near the end of March. And so keep an eye on this. And then also just... We need to start thinking and pushing back pretty quickly about the line that the Doug Ford government has already started using, which is that the the which is that the ring of fire is going to be necessary for a clean energy transition. And there's a hundred percent like it's undoubtable that you need that we will need some you know, increased lithium mining and other mining. Like there's, you cannot make the claim that you can do a technological transition to batteries without some increase of mining. But we can't allow the reality, that reality to justify further colonial actions of the mining industry, which are not just here in Ontario, but are across the world. And so as environmentalists, one of the things we have to figure out is how we can start communicating about the transition that does not require just basically millions and millions and millions and millions of batteries. Because, like, yes, we need a lot of batteries, but, like, every single car cannot be electric vehicle. We need trains. We need bicycles. We need these other tools available to us, or else we're going to be stuck in this loop where conservative governments are going to justify these kinds of things, or any government is going to justify these kind of colonial actions um, to gain access to these resources that are required for especially battery and, and renewable energy. But to you, Lauren. Yeah, there's so much happening here. Something that I sort of only just learned once once um, I started hearing about this, this, this act, which is called the Building More Minds Act, which in some ways is a deeply stupid name, but it's also like almost admirably straightforward in its communications. But um, 
I didn't realize that so much of the world's mining capital goes through the Toronto Stock Exchange. So many mining companies are based out of Toronto. Like I, I sort of didn't, this was something that I am like, sort of like ashamed to say, like was so not on my radar in the past. So when, um, when I, when, when we were chatting about this on the show or when we decided we were going to chat about this on the show, I went to Mining Watch Canada, which is, I believe like a, a regional node of like an international organization that focuses on exactly what it says, mining and and the environmental and, and social justice and, um, Human rights, human rights effects of, of, of mining operations all over the world. They're talking specifically about this act and their take on it was, I don't know, somewhat interesting. Um, if, if folks want to learn more about the act, it's a great website to go to. Again, Mining Watch Canada, um, great organization. They do good work if that's something you want to get involved in. Um, but one of the things that they were sort of talking about, and I'm, I'm going to quote directly from their website here, Doug Ford's attempt to fast track mining projects by cutting environmental obligations downloads the risk to Indigenous communities and the people of Ontario, including the risk of turning the North into a conflict zone as Indigenous communities rightfully push back. He were being there rightfully. Um, and as such, conflict will only rattle investors and hinder development. So their sort of take on this is that it's like, it was already incredibly easy to, to get a mine approved within within North America. So this act doesn't actually cut that much red tape aside from like the cleanup stuff. It's it's it, nobody's kind of diminishing the effects it's gonna have, but it's not really gonna fast track any mining projects for all intents and purposes. But what it is gonna do is make these more um, public zones of, of, of conflict. And it was something else that, um, again, quoting here from, from the website, indigenous law specialist, Kate Kempton, the Northern uh, First Nation, uh, yeah, she's a law representative from the Northern Ontario First Nations of Attawapiskat, um, Ginugaming, and Constance Lake and Arrowland uh, was quoted in the CBC as saying, um, the government's actions will only lead to further confrontation. Doug Ford is basically setting up himself and his government for a bunch of injunctions and blockades. He paved the road for court action and possibly direct action as well. Um, so just that this is, a, this is this is an area that like could potentially become a bit of a battleground in the next few years is Ontario and these various mining operations, but also that like potentially Doug Ford might have shot himself in the foot with this or himself or, or, or future governments um, in, in passing this this act ultimately, um, which I think is almost an uplifting take in a way. So maybe he's one, he's one of those guys that shoot that shoots himself in the foot and then gets more power from him somehow. Yeah, somehow. He is the master of failing upward. He really is. Wow, that's such a good way of phrasing it. That whole family. Yeah, Rob failed so hard, he went all the way up to heaven. <laughs> the Green Majority were going on record saying, we believe in heaven, and we believe Doug Ford is... Oh, wait, Rob <laughs> Ford is there. <laughs> if God is just, Rob Ford is smoking crack in heaven. Um, finally, the RCMP body that is generally tasked with eliminating uh, indigenous dissent to resource theft is being investigated by the RCMP's federal watchdog. The Community Industry Response Group, known as CIRG, C-I-R-G, has been accused of various offenses in B.C. APTN News reports, quote, Our investigation of CIRG in June of 2022 uncovered allegations against the unit that include intimidation, torture, brutality, harassment, racism, theft, destruction of property, arbitrary detention, inhumanity, lying, and deceit. The investigation obtained evidence of vast spying, including casual surveillance of law-abiding groups engaged in the democratic process, 
uh, collusion with private security, collaboration with industry lawyers, and willful violations of RCMP policy. The TAI recently learned that of the extra $230 million BC is putting to rural policing, $36 million of that is going to CERG, although they weren't uh, mentioned by the government when they made the announcement of the funding. So anyway, the, the, their allegations, they, they, they're allegations. They're not necessarily evidence for all of those allegations, but we'll see what the, what the lawsuits and the, and the investigation does. But also, I'm not really certain how... I mean, the, the, the RCMP's federal watchdog is tied to the RCMP, right? It's not like... Uh, yeah, I don't think it's like an independent, a truly independent body. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this this story in some ways ties back into a few of the stories we just chatted about previously, which is the ways that the state will constantly use police action to criminalize dissent, in this, in that, as we see in Cop City, and that that dissent is usually in pushing back against resource extraction, as we see in the sort of mining experience in Grassy Narrows, and it's particularly targeted against, you know, indigenous land defenders. And so this story sort of is a, a take-home of those other two and ex- should serve us to understand how all of these things are interconnected. Yes, I mean, it can help us understand how they're interconnected, but, but, but I would like to know precisely how they're interconnected. Well, I can't do that quickly, though. Do it now. <laughs> All right, and now we will go to a music break and return with Stefan and Lauren speaking with Dr. David Suzuki. He's a doctor? Oh, yeah, he's a PhD. Yeah. And Mark Starovich and Caitlin Starovich. The co-directors of Apocalypse Plan B. Co-directors of Apocalypse Plan B. Geoengineering. Don't you dare touch that frickin' dial. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, including other great shows like Left Turn Canada Big Shiny Takes and North Untapped thank you so much for listening We are here with David Suzuki, Mark Starovich, and Caitlin Starovich, who are co-directors and the hosts of Apocalypse Plan B, which is on the nature of things and available on CBC Gem. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And I'm a seven host center, and I'm here with Lauren Latour. As always. Well, actually, that's a lie. Not as always. I, I'm very rarely on these interviews, so <laughs> stoked to be changing things up a little bit today. We're talking about Apocalypse Plan B, which for some reason 
in the last month and a half, everyone has begun talking about geoengineering. I don't know if this has happened to, to you folks or if it's just in my world, but I've come across about five or six different things talking about geoengineering the last little bit. And so this overview that you've done and, and warnings that you've put out is uh, very timely. But perhaps we can start with the most simple question, which is how would you define geoengineering? Well, David, do you want to take a grant? You go ahead. It's your program. Well, geoengineering essentially means mitigating the climate, mitigating the weather, attempting to artificially change the weather mechanically through either use of aircraft that are spraying aerosols, often sulfur, sulfur, or altering the clouds by manufacturing clouds naturally, or more benignly, direct air capture, which is trying to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But either way, the reason you're seeing so much of it now is that people are really scared and it's sinking into legislators, everybody, that things have gone very, very wrong and we're in really one minute to midnight and then in 30, 40 years, we could be, you know, in danger as a civilization. So radical ideas are in the air on how we can manipulate the climate. Outer post to that is, well, just a minute. Why don't you just shut off the tap? As Greta Thunberg says, when you come into your home and find that the tub is overflowing, the first thing you do is you don't reach for the towels. You don't reach for the bucket. You don't reach for the knot. You shut off the tap. So that's the dynamic. So we're talking about the buckets, the towels, and the mop part of the scientific debate versus the shut off the tap debate. Fantastic. It's Basically, the way I look at it is that uh, we are continuing the conceit that we are somehow in control. And what geoengineers do is say, okay, we're going to engineer the atmosphere. We're going to take over the atmosphere and engineer weather and climate, which is the, the height of uh, conceit to a point where it becomes stupid. And, you know, the reason you're hearing a lot now, I think, is that the fossil fuel industry can no longer continue denying the reality that something's going on and that fossil fuels are at the base of it. They've, con they've very successfully maintained this lie that they've known for years, no decades, that it's a lie to say, no, fossil fuels are not responsible for the warming that we're seeing. It's, it's increasingly difficult for them to do that now, but they've kept their profitability up all the way through. So it's been very successful. We've run out of time. And now what can we do? Oh, geoengineering seems to be the, the only option left. And I'd like Thank to you. echo those excellent responses. It's kind of the thinking that the sun is the problem in global warming, when that's not the truth. The problem is us and our destruction of the environment. That's very well put. Very kind of, you've, you've, you've reduced it down, down to the essence of the argument there. So. Within your documentary, Apocalypse Plan B, one of the solutions that you do advocate for and, the, and that you do sort of discuss as being a potentially less frightening path to, to move us down is, is this path of 
regenerative processes, whether we're looking at regenerative agriculture or rewilding of given spaces and and fostering healthy and biodiverse forests. How do we foster and incentivize these regenerative processes without buying into flawed concepts of carbon markets? Something else we've sort of seen over the last couple of months is stories of of fraudulent offset systems. I know a lot of the times when we're talking about nature-based solutions within climate spaces, we hear a lot of pushback from Indigenous communities and Indigenous nations and organizations that it'd say that's great in theory, but in practice, it oftentimes ends up looking like a land grab, as as historically so many sort of regenerative processes have 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 ended up sort of playing out. So how do we, like I said, how do we foster and incentivize these regenerative processes without either buying into those flawed carbon markets or resulting in in land grabs of, of indigenous territories? David, I think you'd be best to do that. Well, I mean, you you've raised a very important point. You know, I I must admit that I have for years tried to compensate for all the carbon I've emitted flying by buying, you know, carbon credits all over the place. We, in fact, the David Suzuki Foundation looked at these offsets that are being offered and said, stay away from planting trees. Planting trees, you know, may be one, but they've got to last for a long period of time and and who knows whether they whether we can plan enough and that that's not it's got to be done but don't use that as the offset i've been paying for a gold standard offsets from the united nations which is the money that i pay to compensate for the carbon goes into building windmills and solar panels in countries that are trying to electrify their grid and if that money wasn't invested they would have to go to to coal or oil. So it's to prevent new plants, fossil fuel plant burning plants from coming online. But it doesn't reduce my emissions. It's just a feel-good thing where I think, okay, I've paid money now. At least I'm preventing more carbon coming in from their from their energy plants. But it it's really it, it's a rationalization for me to continue to fly without reducing my footprint. And so that's that's one dilemma. The other thing, of course, is the incredible ways that the private sector can find to cover itself in green and pose as uh, fulfilling these things and, and finding ways to make money. That's always going to be the case. We have to mandate targets to reduce our emissions, period. And it's got to be done very, very quickly. But the, the problem is that in Canada, for example, and Canada as an industrialized nation is especially vulnerable to the impacts. We're a northern country. Canada is already warming at two to four times the global average. We're, and the Inuit have been telling us that for decades, that it's warming. But we have the longest marine coastline of any country in the world. Sea level rise just from warming. You know, you get thermal expansion is going to hammer Canada more than any other nation. Then you think of all of our economic areas of agriculture, forestry, fisheries, tourism, winter sports that are all going to be drastically affected by climate. It should be the highest priority of our government. We had a government that came in in 2015 that said, Canada is back. Hallelujah. After nine and a half governments, nine and a half years of a government, Stephen Harper, that wouldn't do anything to address climate as a serious issue. He just called it 
doing acting on climate change crazy economics. The, so he elevated the economy above the very atmosphere that gives us air to breathe, weather, climate, and the seasons. The economy was more important. Well, then we had Trudeau coming and saying, Canada's back. And wow, did we ever celebrate. Two and a half years later, he bought a pipeline. And you know, on April 4th last year, I think it was April 4th, we had the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who said, and he's been great on climate, by the way, he said, any further investment in infrastructure for fossil fuels is a moral and economic madness. Two days later, Canada approved the Bay du Nord deep sea development off Newfoundland. And 10 days later, Christian Freeland gave TMX, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, a $10 billion interest-free loan so that Canadians are now on the hook. If they can't meet their payments, guess who's going to be paying for that? It's Canadian taxpayers. This is after Guterres said, this is economic and moral madness. So at least Harper was honest. He didn't believe in climate change. Trudeau says it's an important issue and Canada's back, but everything indicates he's no better than Harper in terms of setting, setting standards. And so the problem is that, you know, we now have the best possible person we could imagine as a minister of the environment, Stephen Gilbo. He's a climate activist. We have the best person I can imagine, the minister of fisheries and oceans, Joyce Murray. We have the best environmental minister in British Columbia, George Heyman. He was once ahead of the Sierra Club. But they're all captive of politics, the political system. First of all, children don't vote. So who gives a shit about the future for children? They're not on the agenda. Future generations, they don't, for that matter, the atmosphere doesn't vote. The air, the water, the soil, the minister of fisheries and oceans, You'd think her job is to protect the fish in the oceans. They don't vote. It's people who want to use them. The minister of the environment, he's not there to protect the environment. Besides which, oh, well, he's only with a small part of the environment. Mining isn't it in his portfolio. Forestry isn't in his portfolio. You know, we're just not serious about the issue. And our political process really prevents us from acting seriously. Right. That's, yeah. Thank you for that. I have a question that I, I was hoping I might hear an answer to during your documentary. And so I'm wondering maybe in some of the background conversations or research that you did, you might've got, you might've got there, which is, Caitlin, you mentioned that like the sun isn't the problem. And yet the solar radiation management schemes are all sun-based really quite directly. And yet one of the number one problems that we come, I come back to is the acidification of oceans. And so, yes, it'd be great to be a little less hot for some period of time, but do the people who are sort of advocating for this have any, like, is the idea to have one solution for the sun and a different solution for the oceans and a third solution for something else, like this sort of additive and solution nasizing, a gene engineering sort of to tackle each individual issue? Or is this really just a, we want to dim the sun because that's how we're thinking about it and the oceans will will sort themselves out like i'm curious if you, when you talk to these people who are sort of advocating for this did they have answers to these like more ecosystem conversations except for marine cloud brightening 
at the University of Washington in San Antonio. There wasn't, and that was, there wasn't a specific deployment about cooling the oceans or modifying the oceans. So no is the short answer to your question. And that's such a vast area that it would have taken an entire other documentary to do it. This documentary is mostly a clarion call about the atmosphere. And did you know that people are so desperate, they're already thinking of this, not only thinking about this, but planning it, which, you know, scares the living daylights out of me. I, I think David would be much more experienced in dealing with issues that are affecting the ocean, which you're absolutely right, is a whole dimension that, that merits a separate discussion. Something we didn't even discuss in the show was deep sea injection of carbon dioxide. Did you cover that now? I was shocked that one of the board members of our, my foundation, who's the head of the ONC, the Oceans Network, which is one of the biggest projects in Canadian history to study under the ocean. She's a great person to, to head ONC, but she's given support for this deep sea notion that you could pipe carbon dioxide deep under the ocean and with the massive weight of the water above it, it would force that gas to, to come out of, out of the gaseous phase and actually become rock. Apparently this is a, a natural process and it could be done. It would take about 12 years for the car, for this to go down and, and become rock. And Kate Moran, the head of ONC, has come out in support of it. So I haven't talked to her about that, but it just strikes me as another of these techno solutions that's all based on the notion we're so smart that we can actually achieve it with some kind of engineering or, or technology. It's going to require a fleet of ships. First of all, I don't believe we can capture all of the... It's very difficult once you burn fossil fuels to then capture it. Even if you have things in the, the pipes, the stacks, you can't capture it all. But supposing we capture a huge part of it, then we would have, the, have to have the technology to deliver that to the ships and then pump it down into the ocean. And you'd have to pump it under pressure to get that down there. I, I, the, and I don't know how many dozens of boats, massive boats we'd need. I think the scale is so immense that it becomes, you know, it's like there's a, a kid in Holland who thought that he wanted to clean up the plastic by going out. And when you look at what he's achieved, it's such a tiny part, fraction. The scale of the pollution in the ocean is so immense. And it would be crazy to think, oh, the oceans are acidifying. We've got to spray alkali into the ocean and, and reduce the, the pH. I mean, it's just... Oh, and there's ideas of putting, of putting white plastic, believe it or not, white semi-plastic pellets in the ocean to increase yeah. the reflectivity. There's also pumping iron into the ocean, something you have some experience with, David. Yeah. It's, it's a vast other field, but in my opinion, I'll, I'll throw it to Caitlin in a minute. It doesn't take more than a high school chemistry degree. You say, well, you just don't know the effects. I mean, the multiple complexity, I mean, at the core of the debate in this documentary is a wonderful debate between Dr. Suzuki and David Keith, the principal proponent of interfering with the atmosphere. And as David says, or as David Suzuki says, we did, that's what we thought about DDT. That's what we thought about putting up CFCs. That's what we thought about nuclear energy, whatever side of it you're on. We had no 
fractional idea of what we were unleashing. And, this, and these were done, except for the nuclear bomb, and these were done for the benefit of humanity. So I beg her at the thought of interfering with the, we don't even understand the ocean currents yet. And it's talked already about both the, the, the Gulf Stream ending, the monsoon cycle disappearing. And the thought of even how, I cannot, look, I've spent two years on this. David has spent a lifetime. But in those two years, I frightened myself silly. And the thought of taking the most complex Victorian clockwork in the universe and attempting to change one sprocket and two sprockets and everything else. When we know, well, we have a diagnosis of what was causing the problem or clogging the, the sprocket just frightens me. But anyway, I think at the heart of the issue, it is about us. And, mm -hmm. you know, to talk about dimming the sun, it was global warming that enabled life to, to flourish, you know, greenhouse gases. What they did is trap enough heat so that at night, the temperature doesn't drop with that temperature doesn't yo-yo like this. We needed the greenhouse gases to even that out. And now, you know, thank God. And virtually every culture in history has worshiped the sun. That is the source of our energy. And the idea now that the sun has become a pain in the ass and we've got to do something about it is a height of, of just madness, it seems to me. The problem is, when you look at our evolutionary history, we evolved 150 to 200,000 years ago on the plains of Africa. We were just this furless two-legged ape. And we weren't very impressive compared to all of the other animals on the land with us. Our one advantage was the brain. And with our brain, you know, we, we were a very powerful predator. Just we could make a spear, we could make a stone axe. I mean, we, when we invented a needle, that was huge in terms of the, the history of our species. But it was our intellect, our ability to look out. We had to follow animals and plants through the seasons, carrying everything we owned on our backs. You live in a, and that was 95% of our time on earth. That's what we were, nomadic hunter-gatherers. You know, you think about that. Oh, I can't believe that our ancestors, they survived long enough to lead, to pass their genes on so that we're, we're here today. And we were actually reduced. There were, there were times when we were down to just a few hundred animals. And then, and we made it through those, those times. I'd like to get Caitlin's perspective because she's the youngest among us here, or at least among your guests, and about doomism and the desire to have children, and just the fatalism that has settled into this generation, which you know better than I do, that has become a cultural reality that, first of all, we created this actually as much in our generation in, in the last 30 years that we think this is. As David says in the documentary, we think this is a blood that accumulated over 150 years by our ancestors, when in fact, Caitlin, the, the, the accumulation has been worse since when? Since the 1990s. So since Friends went on the air, more than half of the CO2 in the atmosphere was put up since Friends went on. And so we, we think that, oh, it's too, it's too late. It's been happening for over 100 years. No, it's very recent. And that realization has led a lot of people to climate doomism, especially young people, because we think, what's the point of having children? What's the point 
uh, bringing new life into a world that is potentially doomed, that we have screwed up so badly. So it's in this apathy that people think rather than take action and system change, that maybe we should just give up and throw up our hands, that it's too late when, of course, that is not the reality. We already have the best technology in the world to remove carbon from the atmosphere, and that's forests, it's mangroves, it's the ocean, it's the soil. We have that. So we don't need climate geoengineering. We don't need to tamper with what we've already broken. It's important to let nature help us now rather than us trying to meddle with it. One of the facts that I found most staggering, Stefan and Lauren, was, and, and I would really recommend George Monbiot's M-O-N-B-I-O-T book, Regeneration, was about agriculture. Look, I have a farm. It's not a working farm, but I rent out the land. And we talk about urban sprawl, and that's a bad thing. Anytime your plane is landing somewhere, it seems to be endless before you even reach the runway, just the sprawl, the suburban sprawl. And that's bad. But the total human footprint on Earth of all the accumulated suburbs and, and everything else is 1% of the planet's land surface. 28% of the planet's land surface, that's not the oceans, but the land surface, is occupied in the grazing or feeding of cattle, cattle, sheep, and, and essentially growing meat and milk. 28% of the planet's land surface versus 1% is actually being occupied by humans. And that 28% of the land surface, the huge part of the planet, produces how much of, of the world's food? 1%. 1% of the world's protein. I mean, there's your imbalance right there. That's not even counting the oceans. And, and how we abuse the ocean. So, I mean, I was a little worried doing this document. Oh, come on, we're not going to come out against farmers, are we? I mean, and we're not. But, and there are reform movements growing among farmers. There was a convention of 400 of them across the world in Montreal about three years ago, the regeneration movement. So regeneration cannot be reduced to a sentimental planting of a pine tree somewhere on a weekend. It is, as Caitlin says, and, and um, more pertinently, as George Monbiot says, a system change that involves agriculture, that involves mangrove swamps, natural restoration of woodlands, and the away from steering away from basically growing meat. So regeneration is isn't, in my view, the answer. The question is, do we have time to make regeneration work? George Monbiot says we do, and the hope that he puts out is, you know. It takes about 25% penetration of an idea to change a society. He uses the example of marriage equality. You know, we can all remember when that was sort of an abomination, certainly in Europe, the thought of it in the majority of the people. And yet now it's a totally accepted idea. And he says we can become an ecological civilization, but that's what he thinks is going to take becoming an ecological civilization in the most complex sense, not just planting trees. And that I think is the battlefront of, of the generation. Yeah. So I'm aware of the fact that we are running out of time with you rapidly. So I think this might, this might be our last question. And it kind of plays into what you were just mentioning there about sort of an idea needing something like 25% permeability. You're all climate communicators and really experienced documentarians. So, so you kind of have a unique 
perspective of the climate movement that, that few other people do. And, and I ask this question kind of selfishly as an organizer and activist myself. The Nature of Things, for example, has, has been a tool of, of climate communication and advocacy for over 40 years now. I would love to hear your thoughts on why, as a movement, we haven't done a better job of of pushing that sort of permeability of these concepts a little bit more. Why haven't we won more? Why are we still kind of flailing as as temperatures rise and as carbon dioxide increasingly permeates the atmosphere? Basically, yeah, that, that's my question to you. Why haven't we won more than we have from, from a movement and communication standpoint? Fossil fuel industry has got much more power, influence on government, and the money behind it. They have uh, I want to remind you, when Lyndon Johnson was the president, he said, look, you know, they, the scientists are telling us that there's this thing called global warming. We better look into it. We know that in 1959, Edward Teller, one of the great physicists, so-called father of the hydrogen bomb, told the API, the American Petroleum Industry, which is the counterpart of what's the Canadian one, CAP. The, that this is all the big oil producers are part of API. Edward Teller told them that releasing carbon into the atmosphere is trapping heat on the planet. And if we continue on the path we're on, by the year 2000, it could be catastrophic. 1959, in the 1960s, Exxon's own scientists, led by James Black, were saying, oh my God, Teller's right. All the indications are. Burning fossil fuels is, in fact, accumulating greenhouse gases. They, so what did they do? You remember when, when Jimmy Carter was in office? You remember this, Mark? And he started wearing a sweater. He said, we have to turn down the thermostat. He installed solar panels on the White House. You know, we were aware of that. And by the 1980s, there was a major conference in Toronto in 1988 that said, we've got to aim at a a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. And that's when the fossil fuel industry just came down hard, big time. You've heard of Climate Gate and all the other bulls the fossil fuel industry has used to try to say, no, 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 this is not, this is not real. Scientists are just trying to get bigger grants. They're trying to scare us. And, uh, and it worked. Profitability, they continue to be the, the most profitable sector of of society today, and that means they carry a lot of weight with government. It's, not, it's as David says, the fossil fuel industry and what Bill McKibben has called the most consequential lie in human civilization history, which is the covering up of this, and I don't want to sound conspiracy here, but that's also protected by a massive consumer society that requires disposable TV sets. I mean, I can't, I can't go shopping across the street at Loblaws without coming back with about a ton of plastic, everything. Can't buy a cookie, it's wrapped in plastic. I can't buy four screws. I only want four screws. You can't buy a pound of screws anymore. They're all hard shell wrapped and you need practically a box cutter to get at them. Light bulbs are plastic wrapped. So in many ways, the, the, the pushing of the consumer society, the acceleration of the consumer society broadens it beyond just the oil industry, but it, it worsens it. However, I, I am cautiously optimistic. The last documentary we did was called Rebellion, and it was about the, the global youth climate movement. It was a, a phenomenal, a, a phenomenal tide that swept across the, the, the world. 
It was arrested somewhat in its tracks by COVID. I think we're recovering from that. But my hope lies in the next generation, Gen Z and, and, and the next generation, which I think is conscious. It has to be protected. It has to be dissuaded from reaching the existentialist, fatalist, doomist views. But I, I, I think almost any civilized human being these days is aware of this issue and is groping for a way to deal with it as you are in this program. And so I, 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 I do think the climate movement has made enormous gains and I agree with George Monbiot. I think we are on the way to the 25% penetration of an idea. We don't have the exact ideas what to do. This documentary is not a prescription of, 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 it's just a survey of some of them, but I think we are in a civilizational moment of change. I would, yeah, echo those thoughts as well. I think the reason may be that the movement has not made more headway is, quite frankly, our addictions. And those are our addictions to capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism, because all of these are inextricably linked. The movement has to be intersectional because there is no climate justice without racial justice. I mean, until we can wean ourselves off of this addiction of just whatever's easiest, keep using fossil fuels, keep burning, keep using, keep taking, until we can be more accountable, we will not make more headroom. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much for giving us your time here and for this wonderful documentary. Folks haven't checked it out. It is called Apocalypse Plan B. It is available on CBC Gem right now. So you could just pause the show right now and go watch this. It's a 45 minutes. It gives you a great overview of some of the both terrifying ideas that are out there and some of the inspiring ones as well. This has been an interview with David Suzuki, Mark Starovich, Caitlin Starovich, and it's been Apocalypse Plan B, which you can find by going to Nature of Things on CBC Gem and then clicking Apocalypse Plan B. Thank you all so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thank you for having us.